programming in, in APL requires a certain kind of abstract geometric uh, intuition. And some people don't like that. So David, David Shaw is a super, super smart guy. But he said, it doesn't appeal to me. I'm a more of a uh, algebra, you know, one potato, two potato, you know, looping kind of guy. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. My name is Connor. I'll be your host. And today we have a super exciting guest that I can't wait to uh, start interviewing and talking to. But before we do that, we're going to do brief introductions. I'll throw it first to Stephen, and then we'll go to Bob, who also has an announcement, and then we will introduce our guest. I'm Stephen Taylor. I code in APL and Q, and these days I'm the KX librarian. And I'm Bob Terrio. I'm a J enthusiast. I'm working right now with the, the J Wiki group, and we're trying to revamp the J Wiki. And uh, it's been a lot of fun, and it's exciting. And if anybody's interested in starting with something from the ground up, that's a good place to start. And also on the J front, for announcements, we're also working on our beta, our new beta. Oh, Henry Rich is working on that. And it involves the threads and the whole concept of threading J. And uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing, it's really a good idea to get on the J forums. We'll in include links for that and, and start talking to people if you have experience with that, because they're starting to figure out with all the different paradigms you can use for instituting threading and blocking and all these different devices, they're working out how that might work as a primitive for J. So uh, kind of interesting stuff going on. And uh, that's it in the J world. Awesome. So yeah, as always, the links will be in the show notes or that you can access. And um, as mentioned before, my name's Connor, um, and I'm not a APL, JK, BQN developer. I code in C++ professionally, but I'm a huge uh, fan, as listeners of this podcast will know, of both array languages and combinators. And that brings us to introducing our guest today. So if you've been listening regularly, you will know that two weeks ago, we interviewed Stephen Apter. And if you couldn't tell, I absolutely uh, loved that conversation. Basically, after recording that, I went and watched, I think, five or six different talks. And um, one of those talks was, let me get the exact title of it. It will be in the show notes. It was, uh, the, the name of the YouTube video is Joel Kaplan, an look, idiosyncratic look at the history of array processing languages, which I believe was given roughly five or six years ago. So that'll be back around 2016. And um, I went and watched this talk because Stephen Apter recommended us bringing on uh, Joel, and uh, he linked us this talk, to which I immediately went and watched. And uh, this talk was absolutely fantastic. It's sort of a, a perspective on the history of a, array languages from, from Joel's point of view. So if you, if you don't know, Joel Kaplan is today is our guest. And uh, the brief uh, biography of him, um, he worked, I believe, for over 10 years at Morgan Stanley, uh, for which he is known um, for many things, but one of them... Uh, being the uh, hiring of Arthur Whitney, and hopefully we'll get to hear the story of interviewing him and uh, any fun stories there. He then went on to work at UBS, um, so also in the finance industry, and then uh, ended his career um, as the president of 1010 Data, which is the company that Stephen was working for as well. So I'll stop there. We'll throw it to you, Joel. You feel free to take us back to whatever point in your career or life that you want and tell us the story of how you ended up where you are today, um, having had a, a very long and storied career in the uh, with array languages. Well, not too long ago, actually, after you know, since I've been involved with a, 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 you know array languages for a long time, somebody pointed out that my name Joel Kaplan has all the you know major uh, vector languages J, you know APL, A, K, you know. So 
But it's interesting because my life was, I, I collided with APL way back and it had a profound impact on my career. I had, I had uh, transferred to the University of Miami from the University of Florida. Where in the University of Florida, I had taken one programming course. I was in mechanical engineering and uh, it was a Fortran course on a VM machine, a CP67. That's all that I, that I had had as an experience. And I really liked the uh, programming. At the University of Miami, uh, I had a colleague, a fraternity brother, a friend of mine, who came up with this idea called Doggy Match, a computerized mating service for dogs. Now, you have to understand this is happening in 1968. And um, we were using the, the PL, a PL1 account that we had as students. And then we ran into this very, very colorful guy, a guy named Brooks White. And I really got to tell you about this. This, is really, this guy was really cool. So Brooks White wrote an, eventually wrote a uh, processor so that APL could talk to other systems. And, you know, this idea of predicting elections, the first election ever predicted was predicted in CBS using APL. I don't know if you know that. And, and it was Brooke White, Brooks White who did that. He was also kind of like a radical, you know, kind of very well, very, he didn't look crazy. He was, you know, you know, wore, you know, wear, you know, button down shirts and everything like that. But he was really a, quite a weird guy. And um, he started with another guy, a, an APL timesharing service on an IBM 360 Model 30. And... Um, they were looking for customers. So me and um, and um, Bruce Cousins, my colleague, um, said to him, look, we're starting this business called Doggy Match, and you got a time-sharing service here, so we can go to dog shows, and if you want, you can, you can participate in any profits that we make because you don't have the money to pay you for the time-sharing service. And so they went along with it. And so this whole thing started. And Doggy Match, I mean, it was, it was a time it was quite popular. My, my partner ended up in um, What's My Line. And uh, they, it's amazing how quickly they guessed it, you know, what he was doing. And, you know, and, and we were interviewed all over the world because it's kind of funny. I mean, I, actually, I could read it to you, but I'm not going to waste time. But, you know, there's this, this article of a guy in the Miami news newspaper who in, in, interviewed us uh, for the newspaper. All right, so... So that's, that's how I got involved with APL. But the problem, the, the good thing was I had a, a DocuTel um, acoustic coupler. It was a huge thing. It was like a big, it looked like the, you know, today when people go in uh, and, and they carry baggages, you know, had little wheels and things like that. So it was this huge machine that had an acoustic coupler and you can, you know, dial in and that's how you did the time sharing. And I had APL to do programming. I had a 30K workspace and I could do all my assignments and things like that. I mean, at that point, I never looked back. I had lost interest in Fortran and all that other kind of stuff. So that's how I how connected with APL and it just, it helped me through all, all, you know, all my career. Then I ended up at IBM and I became a systems engineer. And I don't know if you know, um, look, there's just so much to talk about and I don't just want to make this a, a long, uh, feel free to take, I mean, 
there's sometimes these stories I just like I'm 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 this like I said last on the last interview that this is like better than a Marvel movie and I just saw the new Marvel movie it was great but like listening to these stories about how you stumbled onto APL because you were building a, a a doggy mating business and that the person that you you reached out to for computer storage just happened to be using APL like that's um like no one these days has stories like that. <laughs> like, yeah, everyone knows about Python from an early age. There's no like, oh, I wanted to start a business and this was the way to do it. Um, let's see. So let's talk a little bit about IBM because a lot of people don't realize how important APL was to IBM. Today, you go to IBM, you barely even hear of it. Mm-hmm. In the um, late uh, 60s and through the 70s, IBM had hundreds of mainframes dedicated to running APL programming. And the reason was anything that had to do with financial planning or figuring out how you're going to lay out a, you know, a, a run of, of chips or whatever it was, that required analytics and things like that. And, you know, APL, you know, actually, actually, let me back off. A, there's a lot of things that people think are really, really new, hot stuff, and it's really old crap. I mean, think about it. Time sharing is like the internet. I mean, in APL, you even had a thing called sla- open paren, uh, close paren, MSG. You could talk to people. You could send them messages. You didn't need to have a op- you know, operators and all kinds of people, you know, screwing around with your life. You could just do the work yourself, and you had access to the computer, and it was it's almost like a personal computer. So by definition, smart people at IBM, people really that wanted to get their jobs done, where computing was only a means to an end started using APL because all the, all the other stuff was so bureaucratic. There was so many steps that you had to go through and so on that, uh, that you know, they didn't want to do it. So you had unbelievable, IBM's APL conferences, internal ones, were bigger than the APL conferences outside of IBM, which obviously were highly attended by, by you know, by IBM, uh, by IBM professionals. And, and there were products that were developed, for example, APLDI. Has anybody heard about APLDI? It's called APL Data Interface. It's really basically what 1010 Data is doing. You had a COBOL program that loaded data and sort of inverted it, you know, tipped it on its side. You know, you had records and it tipped it on its side. And then you could do analysis. You can do selects. You can do sorts. You can do tabulations, et cetera, et cetera. So people use this everywhere to do analysis. And, uh, and so people lose also all the... Okay. In order for IBM to, what the systems engineers did is they had to configure hardware that was quite complicated, very expensive hardware. Mostly was being, at that time, was being rented out. And you had to configure them. And all the programs, all the configurators, you know, that the systems engineers at, you know, at the branch offices um, used were all written in APL because they could be updated quickly and they were easy to, to work with. So, like I'm saying, you can't imagine the importance of APL in those years at IBM. How long did that last? So I'm guessing this was late 60s to into the 70s, like? Yes, it, it maybe to the early 80s. So, Joel, um, what caused them to drift away from it? That seems to me that that would be pretty central to what they're doing. You've got all these engineers working with these sort of fundamental level uh, applications in, in APL. Why do, why do you think it was that, that it, got, it, it 
suddenly drifted away? They went. Another, was IBM concerned about the engineers having too much independence, or what do you think it was? I don't think APL appeals to to the to programmers. I mean, to some it does. I mean, you know, you have you have uh, Brooks, you know, who used APL to uh, to define you know the uh, 360 architecture and things like that. But but by and large, programmers aren't into the in, in the mode of you know doing applications or understanding things. They, they're, they're into their own stuff. So they they want to invent other things, you know. They're, they're just, there's a lot of people who don't like it. It's also a cognitive thing. You know who David Shaw is? Have you ever heard D.E. Shaw? Yeah, he's a hedge fund guy. Hedge fund guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, David Shaw worked in my group. And um, I remember that I came to him. Um, and by the way, he's a big guy in... in um, you know, he did a lot of did many advances in um, in how, how to um, do parallel processing, and also he had a company. You know, he was at Columbia, he was the first company, but he 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 also had a company that built compilers to try to, you know, uh, produce code that ran in parallel. And I, I remember I was talking to him. I said to him, you know, what do you think APL? You know, because he was in our in our shop there. You know, we're doing the this is the APT, the Analytic Proprietary Trading Group which, uh, you know, we traded like 2% of the New York Stock Exchange in the 80s. Was this at Morgan Stanley? Yeah, Morgan Stanley. So, you know, he came into our, into our group. And, uh, and he, uh, he said to me, you know, I'm not, an, I'm not a geometric kind of guy. I don't view the world geometrically. And, of course, arrays and things like that are all very, very you know, you know, appeal to the ge- to geometry. I mean, if you look at a lot of the transformations, a lot of the operators in, in, in APL, they're they're really um, uh, transformational. In other words, you know, you, you rotate. You can imagine in your mind. You can actually imagine implementing all the APL operators, you know, the primitives, and you can actually make a physical implementation, right? I mean, you can you can imagine, you know, index, you know, indexing or or rotating or transposing or catenating all those kinds of things are very, uh, you know, structural, if you will. So it's very geometric. And programming in, in APL requires a certain kind of abstract uh, 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 um, abstract geometric um, uh, intuition. <clears throat> and some people don't like that. So David, David Shaw is a super, super smart guy. But he said to me, you know, I, I uh, it doesn't appeal to me. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a more of a, uh, you know, like a algebra, you know, one potato, two potato, you know, looping kind of guy. And that's just the way it is. You know, it's, and he's, let me tell you, he's a very bright guy. He certainly made a lot of money after he left, uh, you know, Morgan Stanley. So I think it's a lot of it is also cognitive. So first of all, I think that, uh, that that's an amazing quote. The one potato, two potato, four looping guy is fantastic. Um, two, as soon as I said the hedge fund guy, I realized I hadn't done service because for, I mean, I've, read a bunch of books, so I know who Deisha is. But for those that don't, uh, a lot of money is like, I think I just Googled his net worth. It's like $8 billion. So Deisha is like one of the most successful hedge funds of all time. Um, famously, Bezos uh, worked there at one point and decided to quit uh, when he was 30 and then went and made a small company to sell books online. And we all know how that went. Um, so yes. And so, so David Shaw worked in your group at one point, basically, and then went on to do Deisha later? Like yes. Wow. Also, and, by the way, Bezos was, uh, you know, when I was a principal, you know, I was eventually became managing director at Morgan Stanley. But Bezos was also at, at the same time 
as I was uh, in, um, in Morgan Stanley. Bezos worked at Morgan Stanley as well? Yeah. Wow, I had no idea. And so then, how did I guess did they work together? Or did how, how did Bezos end up at DE? No, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. It's just a coincidence that they were yep. both two different places. Wow. Okay, so that's crazy. So go ahead, Stephen. Jill, this may be the same, the same question, or at any rate, the same answer as the question Bob asked. Uh, for all its importance, at IBM, but providing personal computing before personal computers existed. As far as I know, APL was never part of the solutions that IBM salesmen took to propose to their to their customers. The solutions were, of course, mainframes, but there was software software with them, and the solutions were PL1 and their databases in them. But APL never seemed to be part of that. Was that the just the same cognitive thing you were thinking of, or is it something else there? Did IBM think they knew something about APL? We didn't. Well, they, they try to sell it, you know, and they, they, they were fairly successful at it. I mean, along with other companies like DEC, uh, they, it was basically APL. Again, it's a time-sharing thing. It was just like ahead, almost ahead of its time, right? It, it, it requires, uh, basically, like the, big, the big invention, I think that APL was, one, if not the first, one of the first uh, languages that was implemented as an, as an interpreter. And I think it's a tremendous value. Space over six, you know what I'm talking about? Space over three, you know what I'm talking about? You key in something. Imagine that you're on a, on a you know, on a, on a terminal. In those days, a lot of it was just with paper. You say one plus one, and then the computer shifts over to the right. It says two. You know what I'm saying? This idea, this interactive idea, was you know very powerful. It's kind of like what the what the web is really like on some level. There's an interactivity kind of thing. So it, it, most of the systems that IBM was selling were like you know big operating systems kind of stuff. And, uh, and, you know, applications for, you know, for, you know, for, you know, accounting and bookkeeping and all that kind of stuff. But they did try to do it. And I'll also, you know, point out the first personal computer was the IBM 5100. And that one had APL on it. And, and uh, you had a switch, you can go to basic or APL. And it had just a tape. It didn't have even disk. I loved that machine. I got one. Somebody gave it to me in the, in the branch office, the banking branch office, because they wanted me to work on my own time to uh, build an application that would keep track of all the, you know, witnesses and things like that at, at the IBM uh, uh, antitrust thing. And that's how I got involved with the 5100. So we, they did try to sell it. I, I mean, this may be a good point. Bill Gates, right? This is going to blow your mind if you don't know this. Bill Gates goes off and basically he starts by building a basic interpreter. But before he built the basic interpreter, he actually built an APL interpreter. And because he, he thought it was great, he, lo he loved APL. I mean, you know, so I got to give Gates credit for that. But what happened was it didn't get any traction. And being a good businessman, he dropped it. Then IBM came along and they gave him the, uh, the opportunity to build the on operating system and so forth. I had a conversation with Bill Gates. He came to visit Morgan Stanley. And, uh, and this, is how, you know, this is how I found out. Um, he, he was introducing the, like 
Okay, why did he come to Morgan Stanley? Because Morgan Stanley brought them public. Okay, the, you know, and so he's always looking for big customers to try to see where he can sell his stuff and, you know, kind of understand places that use technology. So he came to, you know, sort of like a, on a visit to Morgan Stanley. And uh, it was on during the, the, the festival of Sukkot, so I wasn't able to go to the meeting where he spent a lot of time with the technology guys. But then he had a one more meeting, and I showed up to that one, and they, there weren't too many guys there. And I, I was really giving him a hard time. I said, why should I, why should I get stuck with a system that's controlled by you and, you know, it requires your, your software isn't open or anything like that. I, I mean, I'd rather, this is like, by the way, in the early, early 80s. And, and I said to him, why are you, uh, you know, why should I do that? Why should I commit myself to you? You know, and he gave me some great answers like, you know, his stuff is always hardware compatible, blah, blah, blah. Not anymore, but it used to be then. And, um, and so that's, so, so it, so we got to talking about what we do because he, you know, so how do you do things? So I said, well, you know, we have a, we wrote our own APL here, you know, called A and, you know, we use it to, for trading and for analysis because it gives you a lot of capability. He says, yeah, but wait a minute. He says, uh, APL, but that's too slow. And I said, not our, not, not our, you know, our, our interpreter. This is the one that Arthur, you know, wrote for me for, you know, for my group. So, so he, he, all of a sudden he really got, you know, he, you know, you know, got very, really attentive, you know, and he said, but so you're telling me that you use APL in, in production form and everything like that. I said, yeah, yeah. And so he pointed out to one of his guys, you know, you know, the, some technical guy that was with him. I mean, I, I think it's a combination, you know, bodyguard, you know, technical guy, cause he had a little thing in the, in the <laughs> ear and, uh, and he says, you have to follow up. I want to know what these guys are doing. I mean, he never did. And I really didn't care because I'm not, I was not in the business of trying to sell anything. I mean, we were just trading money for, for Morgan Stanley at that time. But I mean, but, but that's when, then I started looking into it and Bill Gates actually tried to build an APL interpreter. Imagine if that had, you know, gotten traction. How did you find out that he had actually written one? Cause I've heard rumors of these stories, but I'd never heard that he'd actually written an interpreter. Yeah, I did some, I did, I looked it up on the web and there's some letter, I, I wish I had it, where he's talking about, you know, in pretty glowing terms about it. So at any rate, I mean, look, it's got to be a small thing in his life, right. but nevertheless, you know, it's like you don't, you don't expect it. By the way, another, yeah, another thing that killed, not killed it, that, that had a big impact on APL is the fact that in the early days, the character set, if you wanted to get the APL character set, you had to have, um, you had to have hardware. You had to do something that was hardware related to your in, in your system. And then, you know, it was a real big pain in the butt to get the APL character set. Yeah, I know, because I, I had to do it too. And, but then of course, you know, very quickly thereafter, everything became software. So, you know, you think, well, what's the problem? But it's, you know, it was already slowing you down, you know? So when I first started falling down the APL rabbit hole a couple of years ago, I had come across this story after talking to Bob Bernanke that Bill Gates had come by IP Sharpen Associates back in the early 80s as well. And he was basically doing this tour of companies around North America trying to, you know, get ideas for the PC that he was going to build. And then I'd heard that story. And then I also stumbled across a photo of an IBM 5100 and zoomed in and saw like the APL basic um, toggle switch. And uh, ever since, I've always thought that there's like a parallel universe where instead of putting basic on the base, the personal computer, uh, some APL variant was put on. And instead of everything looking like basic, everything looked a lot more like APL or something. I'm not sure if you have thoughts on 
is is there actual because because you mentioned earlier too that uh, the geometric or shape thinking that sort of is required for APL, a lot of people don't don't like that or that's not the way their brain works. So is it? Do you think that there is actually a, a parallel universe, or is there? There's just too much of a barrier to entry in terms of the type of thinking that it requires to to be successful with APL. Let Let me just talk about myself. For example, I basically use two languages when I program. I use C, and I use APL. I mean, okay, I don't use APL anymore for many reasons, but you know, but primarily because that you know we committed to that kind of technology, you know, and intent and data and so on. But um, but basically, APL for me is the high level. That's where you could use a lot of leverage. But in in my experience and the kind of systems that we built require that they be high, high performance, high speed kind of stuff. So performance becomes critical. I know many people have taken the, the approach of trying to build APL compilers and things like that. But for me, have, if you have a good interface between C, let's say, or any language actually, then whenever I get into a, a situation where either I'm not smart enough or it just is a one potato, two potato problem, then for the very small amount of code that that's required, which may actually dominate from a, from a CPU cycles point of view, then I just dive in and, and write up small, small piece of code in C and I interact, you know, and I just call it as a function from, so, I mean, I'm both capable of doing, you know, thinking in, in both ways. Some people can do one, some people can do both and some people can do none, <laughs> but you know, it, it, I think you have all different kinds. For example, Arthur Whitney, um, clearly, I mean, you know, he spends most of his time implementing stuff in, you know, in C. So he's he's probably well one of the greatest programmers that, uh, if not the best programmer that I've ever met. And uh, and yet he's a great you know array guy. I mean, you know, he can. <laughs> I got to tell you about an interview how we hired him. So he he comes from uh, you know from IP Sharp. We interview him. I'm interviewing the guy, and um, we have a problem. We're looking at, uh, we have a problem of trying to determine nearest neighbors. Do you know what that is? It's sort of like a, an abstract measure to know if something is like something else. <clears throat> and we're struggling to try to do this in, in APL, in A at that time. No, 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 that was APL, because he hadn't even been hired. He only did that afterwards. And... Um, we posed the problem, and I've mean, been struggling. Some pretty decent APL programmers have been struggling with this thing. I kid you not, he looked, his eyes went kind of like to the left, like looking out. And in like 12 seconds, he went up to the board and he wrote six APL characters. And it was a solution to our nearest neighbor's, neighbor's problem. So I, I looked at the guy and he says, we're going to hire this guy. <laughs> so you, you didn't you, send him for five more interviews? No, or? no, 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 no. I mean, he talked a bunch of other guys, but I mean, everyone had the same, same impression. So at any rate, I think you have different minds. But again, there are people that have a difficult time. I have my my biggest problem is in recursion. I know how to do it, but it doesn't come naturally to me. You know, I mean, programs that are purely recursive, are, you know, it's hard for me. I mean, you know, so it, you know, you have difficulties. So I don't know. I mean, Stephen, Joe, I, I I got a question I've been chewing on for some time. I'm wondering if you can uh, help get me some insight into it. 
1978, when I was working for IP Sharp Associates, I had, was over in Toronto and I arranged to go cycling with Barnecki because I knew he rode a bicycle. I was a young sprog of my mid-20s, and so this was a <clears throat> I thought this was a bit of a cheek me asking Bob to take me cycling in Toronto, but he agreed to do it. However, on the day, <clears throat> something came up and he sent me out with some other young guy who at the time I thought I were, was working with the Zoo IP Sharps um, a systems programming team. Well, that young guy took me cycling through Toronto in the most terrifying fashion. We go the wrong way up, one way street. So we went up with his girlfriend, but two of us were like struggling to keep up with him. That was, of course, Arthur. Um, back a couple of years later, well, a few years later in 83, Chris Sanderson, who was running IP Sharp Associates in Australia, wanted to port the Sharp APL interpreter onto a Hewlett Packard mini computer. And for some reason, I told him he should have to talk to Arthur. And for the life of me, I can't work out what it was. I thought I knew about this young man that would make him a good candidate for that. You decided to interview him a, a year or two later in Morgan Stanley. Why did, why did you interview him? What did you know? Well, he came with an incredible reputation. Also, you know, I don't know if you know, he was like the... The, the bad child at, at the APL conference, you know, the APL uh, developers conferences, you know, he's really a funny guy. Um, let me give you an example. He worked on a generalization of the axis operator, which is a big deal in, in APL. And he figured out how you can define like 20 different primitives as, a, as you know, in terms of the axis operator, right? So you think that he'd be, you know, invested in whatever. He'll drop an idea if it doesn't work. I mean, he's, it's interesting how he's not attached necessarily to any particular thing. Because later on, you know, when he, when he went and he's, he's doing K, he dropped the idea altogether. I mean, I've seen him go back and he, he, he has tremendous fondness for APL. You know, things that he dropped and ignored or changed or, you know, they didn't do or whatever. And then he comes back and he says, oh, that's pretty good. And he'll adopt it. You know, I mean, he, he, he has a bizarre mind. He, I was asking, well, what are the most important, um, what was the most important guidance in the development of K? And you know what he told me? Now, can you try to guess what it was that he said? Starting from scratch each time? I have no idea. Well, he always starts from scratch. He throws all the code. He starts from scratch anyway. But, but uh, not always does he throw away the idea. No, no. His major driving force for the design of the, of the uh, K interpreter is the, the QWERTY keyboard. Really? Yes. He, he, in other words, it's a, you might call it an arbitrary constraint. I mean, this is opposite of what Apter was telling you how, and I like it too, the oldest characters and everything like that. And I, Iverson loves that because he's a mathematician kind of guy. But he said that he, he, he wanted to make sure that whatever his language was fit on a regular keyboard. And that, that particular set of constraints led, led him to, to figure out what primitives he should have and so on. I mean, it's mind boggling, but he was really serious. He's told me some things that are like like totally mind-boggling. I remember we were, when we were doing A, A was a language that we, we developed in Morgan Stanley, which is an, you know, an extension. It was basically APL, but an extension of it that actually had one-level dictionaries. But at any rate, 
Um, I remember one of the guys was saying, well, how are we going to deep, how are we going to debug this interpreter? Right. Cause I mean, you know, and, uh, by the way, Arthur's code is the cleanest code that I've ever seen. I'm not saying it doesn't have bugs, but I am saying it's seriously, seriously good code. Even when first goes out, he said, he looked at, at, at this guy named, the guy's name is David Weiss. He says, I'll tell you what. I'll put in any feature you want me to put in this thing, but for every feature, the new feature you want me to put in, you got to tell me which feature goes out. I was like, <laughs> and then another time, the, the guy said, well, how are, gonna, how are we going to debug it? He said, and he said, he said, oh, if I have to debug this, and I never understood that until much later, oh, you really want me to, you want this thing to be bug free? Well, then I'll have to spend a, a couple of months reading the code. Could you imagine what, what you know, in other words, think about it. Usually, you know, you, you know, you run something and you test it and, you know, and if it breaks, you know where to go, whatever. But for Arthur, the way his mind worked is if you really want to debug the thing, he had to go and read the code very, very carefully. Not execute the code, read the code. It seemed to me like an absurd idea when I heard it. It was only maybe 20 years later after doing, I was doing some kind of, yeah, for example, I, I think it was, yeah, I was doing this parallel processing thing with many tasks, which I, that's not usually what I used to do, but I got into that and I had a really hard problem and it was really impossible to test because there's so many conditions that, you know, that come in and there's all this time shit and everything like that. And I, I found myself, number one, thinking that you better design it right from, from scratch. And really it's a matter of reading the code and understanding that problems can't really arise. Because if, you, if your code is loose, you'll never even be able to debug it. And it's only 20 years later that I understood it. And it seemed absurd when he first said it to me. But I'm, I'm saying he's an interesting kind of guy. Also, other thing about the design of K, Arthur's design goal was that the slowest primitive to the fastest primitive have to live within one order of magnitude in speed. Right. So if, in other words, you can't have operations that are powerful, but impractical from a CPU point of view. And I'll tell you an, another example uh, where this sh showed up, you know, immensely. There was a there was a company called Analogic that was building what today is called a GPU. This is happening in the. 80s. Right. Maybe maybe no the 80s. And uh, so they, you know, so they, you know, it's got parallel stuff in it and whatever. And the guy, the, the owner of the company, got in, interested in APL because APL, you know, has a lot of ideas that you know the operators work sort of like you know all a bunch of things as opposed to just individual, you know, one potato, two potato stuff. And he, they built an APL interpreter. You can look it up, Analogic. Okay, it, it was. It's astoundingly fast on the operations that parallelized well. But it was an impractical machine because every once in a while, you had to resort to an operator that didn't parallelize. And what would happen is the thing would go, it would take 500 times or 1,000 times longer to do it. So it really wasn't even practical. So for, for Arthur, and he uses you know, techniques to make sure that 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 the language is fast all along. So you can really be expressive. Otherwise, it's not practical. So I mean, I mean, I've, been, I've been going on for a long time. And maybe you have.
No, no. So it's amazing that this came up um, organically because that when I was watching your um, your history of array languages talk, the one from 2016, you mentioned at one point this test analogic system, and I tried to Google for it and, and couldn't really find it. And I even went and asked because um, I, I work at NVIDIA, where you know we're one of the biggest GPU manufacturers in the world, and asked a couple folks that have been around for a long time had had they heard of this test analogic interpreter, and none of them um, had had heard of it, but they. They said that if it was earlier than like, you know, the 90s, that, you know, GPU programming was in its infancy. So it wouldn't be surprising if an, an attempt at something like this, where you were accelerating the whole language, um, really didn't go far because of exactly what you're saying. You know, you, you're going to get some little micro pieces of it that are blazingly fast, but as a system, it it's not going to work well. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious if like, if there's been any other company that has tried to do that, you know, since the advent of CUDA programming or, you know, sort of modern GPUs, but... I haven't been able to track down any any kind of startup or company that is is attempting that because it it seems like now in the 21st century like that would be something that could be successful if done correctly. Bob? Yeah, well, actually going back to what you were talking about Joel with uh, the understanding of the programming and have, having to read it to say I could debug it. That actually reminds me of something that Aaron Shu had said or I've heard Aaron Shu talk about in his code defense compiler is that he finds now that he understands it so tightly, he can look at it and make very quick changes to it because he's almost internalized the process so tightly that he can see exactly what he needs to do and he doesn't have all these side effects rippling through. It's a level of understanding of a program that I don't think most people who write or, or program actually get to because they do get into that loop of I'll try this oh it didn't work I'll try this it didn't work as long as you're working in that area you're never really going to understand what you're doing it's like writing and rewriting literature I think you if you're you could get to, to a very good piece of literature but if you really really if you're one of those people that really 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 understands what's going on you're like Shakespeare. You can you can put words together in such a way that it just really works and it wouldn't be put together any other way. Do you think that's sort of what's going on with these, um, I want to say times 10, but it's probably times 1,000 or 100,000 programmers where they're actually working at a different level of understanding of what the programs are doing? Yeah, for example, the smartest guy, I mean, like I said, the best programmer that I know, you know there's another guy, by the way, you may want to interview him. His name is Adam Jacobs. Um, he works at Tenton Data, but I, I don't want to. But anyways, um, Arthur. Every time he writes a new language, it gets smaller, and it does more, and it's faster. And um, if you look at his code, it's it's bizarre. <clears throat> He'll have like the the you know the source for K, right? I don't. Know, it's it's 140 140k. The whole interpreter, and that one included GUI. That that one had a GUI. Um, basically, he has a a dot a dot c b dot c c dot c d dot these. You know, and that, just a few things. And every one of these, you know, uh, scripts is fits on a screen. Very easily on a screen, and he 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 writes C. He has these macros, so that he he strings a lot of a lot of uh, you know K a lot of C things in a in a in a row. So it's completely totally dense, 
You understand what I'm saying? There isn't one blank anywhere. And it's A dot B, B dot, you know, A dot C, B dot C, C dot C, and so on. And it's maybe 10 of those, and that's it. I can't tell you the numbers of times that I got into trouble, and he never, ever wants to show anybody his code. Not because he doesn't, he doesn't want, you know, he's just, you know, it's because it scares the shit out of people. There was a guy from IP Sharp, I can't remember, he made, made a big, he was a pretty big shot at Morgan Stanley, too. And we showed him K. He's an APL programmer, too. And, and he loved what he saw. And then he says, can I take a look at the code? And Arthur says, I don't really want to show it to him. I said, ah, come on, let's show it to him. And the guy sees it. And when he saw this code, he says, this is unmaintainable and impossible to, you know, to, uh, to debug. And, uh, and Arthur turned the machine off and looked at him and says, you're a pinhead. <laughs> and I, 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 almost, I actually lost my job in Morgan Stanley eventually afterwards because I pissed this guy off. But at any rate, my, my point is that, uh, that, that it's, it's counterintuitive. But what he's trying to do is exactly what you're talking about. He's kind of has it all in his mind. He can, you know, you can, if you're going, we have code that's all over the place with pointers this way and whatever. It just, it, it's hard to maintain. And this is for the smartest programmer. He can deal with complexity, right? He's tr because he's smart, he makes it, he keeps it as simple as possible. And that's a lesson. You know, by the way, Aptus code, you have, well, you've seen some of it because you've you looked at it in SNL. I mean, he's, he's got a similar kind of stuff, but you know, it's counterintuitive. A lot of these things are just totally counterintuitive. Arthur was at a conference I, I was at in uh, 2014 in Toronto, uh, a J conference, and he spoke at that. And one of the questions came up is, have you, have you really reached the level that this can't get any faster and, and, and more compact? And his answer was, well, no, because the optimum is no code and infinitely fast. Exactly. <laughs> and that was just as everybody kind of went, yeah, I guess if you're working in these areas, that is the optimum, and you will never reach the optimum until you can do that. He was quite happy with where he was in terms of what he'd come up with, but his his target is not the usual target of what most people are aiming for. That's true. I wonder if you have thoughts, because seeing as we're talking about code density and, and Arthur's style, is um, at the beginning of your, your talk... Um, the one that I've mentioned a couple of times now, you quote, I think Ken Iverson quoting Babbage uh, and, the, and the three word quote, which is, a, it's a longer quote, but the three words that are bold that are brevity facilitates reasoning. And I've, I've had this ongoing, you know, battle in my head of, of does the tersity, you know, the terseness of the symbols and the fact that you can spell things so succinctly, is it important? And like, even very recently, I, you know, had a, in my thesis that I was writing, you know, it was, I was talking about the, the expressive power that comes with being able to spell something so succinctly. And uh, their remark was like, you know, I don't see why this is, why this is being remarked a couple different times that like, you know, the fact that you can spell it with a few number of characters is important. And I just like, I wonder if you have thoughts. I feel like this is something we should be asking all our guests is like, does, does the fact that it can be spelt with so few characters, is that really like a, a, a feature, an important feature of the array languages? Or is it something that potentially we over-index on? Yes, I think it is very important. And in my story there, you know, the, my talk that you saw, <clears throat> I, I cover that. I mean, it goes back, see, most, most languages, programming language, a lot of them are kind of very new. But since this is based on mathematical notation, it has a long history, right? 
going back to, you know, aquarism, you know, with, uh, you know, showing you how to algorithms for multiplication and so on. And, you know, especially with Leibniz. Leibniz thought that the purpose for, you know, having a formal logical system was to, uh, to make it possible to think. I mean, I have a quote. I don't, I mean, I, from that paper. Let me see if I can find it. Okay, so this is, this is Leibniz, right? He invented, you know, inventor of the calculus, refined binary numbering system, prolific inventor in the field of mechanical calculators. Leibniz calcular, calculus ratiocinator, ratiocinator, which resembles symbolic logic, can be viewed as a way of making such calculations feasible. By the way, that system was in his machine that he, that he built. They, that same plan was utilized hundreds of years later, still was in, was in use. Leibniz saw symbols as, import, as important for human understanding. He attached so much importance to the development of good notations that he attributed all his discoveries in mathematics to this. His notation for the calculus is an example of his skill in this regard. And this is, you know, this, this is a quote from you know, a Wikipedia article. So, so what I'm saying is you have an enormously long history. You, know, you look at today, the standard model in physics, it fits on a page, right? Now, is it easy? Not necessarily. I mean, in, but, but, but in a certain sense, the brevity helps. So, you know, also understand, I mean, K or APL is a, is a complete language, right? So if you want to write loops, you can write loops. You can write loop, you can express anything you want as dumbly as you like. You have a choice. But, but, uh, but I think that there's a lot to be said for that, and it's just basically what mathematics has done. People invent mathematics. I mean, if you look at the proofs from, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Newton, Newton, who invented calculus, when he's selling his idea, <clears throat> it's all using geometry, really complicated stuff, because they didn't have the, the people didn't understand. So I think there's an evolution, right? And, uh, and and that's and so I, so that's why I say that the APL language starts way 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 far back. It inherits all of that, you know, increasing generality notation that mathematics gets. So yes, it's it's very important. It's really interesting because you talk about Leibniz and you talk about Newton and that whole dispute over who invented calculus. And I've never thought of it this way, but you're right. Newton had this whole. Um, way of thinking about what the calculus was and his whole way of of doing it and understanding it, but found it very hard to explain it to other people. And at the same time, and the, I think it's pretty much uh, uh, acknowledged that they both invented it independently, but Leibniz did use a better notation, and Leibniz's notation was used in large, not in all areas, but in most areas. It's the one we use today. And as a result, Leibniz could do the same thing that this other guy, you know, a hundred miles or hundreds of miles away on the other side of the English Channel, but he was doing it with notation, and as a result, he got almost equal credit for inventing it, I think, actually, depending on what country you're in. Because I think in some countries, Leibniz is acknowledged as the inventor, and in a lot of countries, Newton is the inventor of the calculus. But um, it, it, the notation is really, really a powerful thing when it comes to these complicated ideas. The simpler you can make it, and I think notation helps that, the simpler you can make it to understand, the more likely it is to be able to be adopted. 
Yeah, I definitely believe that. Now, some of these concepts are hard. So when you look at a line, a line of APL or K code, some of them are very deep. But I mean, the problem that you're trying to solve is pretty deep too. I wonder if there's a history of there being um, resistance or friction to introducing the, these notations, you know, back hundreds of years ago when they were being introduced or, if, you know, or how long it took. Because it, it seems like, from my experience, you'll show people an APL or J or K expression and... Um, just the reaction you get is just like, well, that's just, you know, that's, there's, how could anyone read that? Um, and it's, it's really, it's just a language that you learn. And each of those primitives represent an algorithmic operation or some sort of kind of transformation. And, uh, when, when I hear you talking about, you know, the calculus notation and it's, it's like, it's this sort of agreed upon thing that it is, whether it's the, the best form of the notation, you know, that's another question to be answered, but then the notation itself is helpful. It is. It subordinates detail. It, you know, makes things pop that are important. Um, but I, uh, yeah, yeah, it's lost on me. There's somewhere here. There is like a beautiful argument for um, the spelling of these languages. But I, I definitely feel like I haven't I haven't found it yet. Um, well, and with the calculus, the thing is, is that the notation was ahead of the actual understanding of it, because it was you know, hundreds of years later when they actually got into the analytics of it, that they found it actually how it did work and what infinitesimals were. But they were they were leaning on the notation to get them through the calculations before they understood what the calculations actually were. And it was in, I think it was in the 1800s, early 1900s, where this all came together and they said, oh, that's that's how we can do this. Up until that time, they were just using it. They didn't really have the fundamental down to the very, very most basic fundamental levels of understanding, they were using it because it worked and because the notation worked more than they understood exactly what was going on. So in the case of talking about Arthur, I'll take a couple months to, to read it. That's where calculus ended up. It took a couple months, a couple of hundred years to really get it to the point where I know exactly what's going on. But in the meantime, I could actually use it. And if I've written it properly, if my notation, if my notation is good... It's going to work for me. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem that you have is the same problem why people don't, don't go into math or whatever. I mean, they, some of them have a facility, but it takes effort, right? And uh, if, 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 let me ask you this, this question. Is French a better language for communicating than Portuguese or English or Chinese? I mean, you know, whatever. You know, I'm just saying, if you know it already, it's a means to an end. You're not even focused there. Most people aren't focused. They don't care about the, you know whether it's better or not, even if it is better. If that's what I know, that's what I know. You know what I'm saying? And so that's a, there's a big, there's a, in other words, there's a, there's a big um, step function to get over. And, and, and by the way, that has to do with the marketing with Tintin Data. I mean, because I mean, Tintin Data in many ways reflects, you know, the, 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 the vector, vector idea. You know what I'm saying? So it's a very powerful paradigm. But it requires a certain amount of effort to get into it, and then that if, you know that, that makes it difficult because some people won't won't accept it because they're doing whatever they're doing. You know what I'm saying? So that's a psychological issue. Yeah, maybe we can talk because we we've I think spent most of the time talking about uh, the '80s and your time at Morgan Stanley. And I'm not sure if you want to tell the story. You, you briefly mentioned that you were fired by someone that Arthur called a pinhead, um, or, or something happened there, and then. I know you transitioned to, to UBS and uh, and then on to 1010 Data Later. Do you want to um, fill in some of the details there? I'm sure there's some some more interesting stories and 
um, things that happened along the way up, up until, um, yeah, what you were most recently working on. Okay. So quickly how I got out of, how I left uh, Morgan Stanley, basically you always need a rabbi in every, in or, organizations are pyramidical in structure. <clears throat> so at the end, you know, the higher up you go, you know, the, 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 the less, less room there is up there. And my rabbi lost and some other rabbis won and this guy's rabbi won. And so there wasn't a lot of, a lot of room there. So in a certain sense, um, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating you know, the, that, that because we're politically in, on different you know, sides of the aisle. So then I left Morgan Stanley. By the way, Morgan Stanley treated me very well. And uh, I was actually introduced by a you know, partner, I can't remember his name right now, uh, to a guy in uh, UBS uh, who was you know, very high up there, maybe second in command. He, he handled all of trading for the Union Bank of Switzerland. And what they were trying to do is um, um, they were trying to become like, you know, Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. And, and they didn't, they were not as advanced as those places and they wanted to really leapfrog and get there. And so he, he interviewed me to sort of build a platform for them so they could do their trading and catch up with, you know, to the kind of stuff that Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, you know, and other you know, major brokerage houses could do. And I, I said to him, why don't you buy some, some firm? You know, I mean, it might be cheaper if you just bought, you know, Bear Stearns or I, I don't remember what other name I gave him. Uh, but he decided that he didn't want to do it. So we got the job of basically building the platform for fixed income, all of the technology. And so I ended up, you know, running... Um, which is something that I also did in Morgan Stanley, by the way, after I did the trading, you know, basically running fixed income research and technology and building it from scratch. And for that situation, we hired Arthur so that we'd have, you know, we'd have him his full attention on, you know, making sure that the K platform really works. So again, all, all his products really are tested in the fire of reality. You know what I'm saying? And so that's what happened. And then eventually, you know, I don't want to get into the details, but uh, that whole thing fell apart. It's mostly politics. And at that point, we decided that we were done. Um, you know, I was done with uh, working for somebody else, although that had been proved quite lucrative. Just give me a second, because I have some notes here that might be. Yeah. So in, in 1999, uh, Sandy Steyer, who's, uh, you know, one of the originators of Tenton Data, myself, and a guy named Peter Miller, who's no longer associated with the company, he's a no friend of mine, um, <clears throat> end up in Palo Alto at Arthur's house. And what we're doing is coming up with the following idea, which is basically tent and data. You now have a web, it's in its early stages, but why should everybody have to build the whole system in order to do analysis? I mean, just give us your data, we'll load it up, and all you have to worry about is doing the analysis and doing the, your queries and things like that. So that was the idea. So basically, we came up with that the cloud was a place to do it, <clears throat> that it was SaaS, meaning that you're not, you're not buying hardware on your own and installing all that stuff. And that you could do the analytics yourself. We, we, the idea that we had there was something like Yadata. You have to understand Google didn't even exist. 
So, you know, Yahoo was the thing and people go to Yahoo or maybe, um, what's that, Vista, what do you call it? Um, Alta Vista. Alta Vista, whatever. But we would do the same thing for actual analysis of data where numbers are involved and, you know, things like that. And that's how the idea of Tintin Data came. And that's where we started. And so the way that Arthur played into this thing is that we, we contracted to use his, you know, the K platform. And uh, that was the beginning of Tintin Data. You know, and eventually, you know, that worked and, you know, and we, I mean, we sold the Tintin Data about five years ago to the Newhouse people for half a, half a billion dollars. And uh, it worked out pretty well. You sold it for $500 million? Yes. And that worked out well. <laughs> That's a very uh, understated, uh, sounds like it worked out very well. By the way, I just thought of something. Another reason why Tintin, why K or APL or all those guys didn't do so well is because it's a... The people that were developing the stuff wanted to make money. They didn't want to give it away. For example, Dialog APL. It's a great product. Um, but people are selling it. It, it, it. They didn't go the open, open source route. I mean, Arthur could have gone the open source route. But, you know, Arthur's doing very well. He's in, you know, uh, you know Turcos and Caicos Island right now. You know where he is, right? He's, he's hanging out, he's, you know, in, uh, in, in the Bahamas someplace and working on, uh, on Shakti, whatever. I'm just saying, but he's got a lot of money. I mean, so it worked out well for him. This has worked out well for me. But if you, you know, if people had really at the right timing and the right timing in the right place, you know, made this stuff free or whatever it is, maybe it would have taken off more. You know what I'm saying? I mean, but, in the, but then on the other hand, this, but so what? <laughs> you know, I mean, yes, I have this great desire and I do. I mean, there's a certain way which you know I feel like a, almost like a like a profit or for K and APL and all that stuff. But uh, but we didn't go that route, and that did slow things down. You do have to understand that. Yeah. Do you have well? So do you have thought? Because I know this is. Uh, I mean, I think it's inspiring for the the APL story that like I've I've heard that um, Arthur sold K4 and Q for a hundred million dollars, which arguably makes it the most expensive program in the world because it was 50 kilobytes of code so I, I heard from someone once that it was like per kilobyte of code it was the most expensive piece of software ever sold which is you know it, obviously they were selling kx the whole company which came with customers and stuff so it wasn't just the uh the you know the the, the k k k program and, and q um but that's so that's two businesses though uh, kx and k and um what became q that got sold obviously very su successfully and now 1010 data, um, I guess, so there's two questions is like, do you think, uh, yeah, do you think the world would be different today if everything was open source? Because technically J is open source. There is an open source um, APL that does exist. So it's not like that. There's zero open source array languages. Um, and that's the thing is I've, I've these, these stories of people building successful built uh, uh, companies on top of array languages, um, uh, they're not like this is the first time I'm hearing of uh, the 1010 data one. And it, it took me um, a couple months to, to find out about the KX one. And even when you go search for that, the articles that come up are basically like the news briefings from, yeah. from some, you know, it's, it's not like this was on the front page of the wall street journal or, or even on like, you know, page 26 and section four, like these stories aren't really widely reported on. And um, I wonder if, if there, if that's intentional or, or cause it, cause it seems like there's definitely, 
a ton of people out there that have uh, built very successful careers on top of these languages, but it's um it's not as widely known at least um at least from someone who's only gotten into this world in the last couple of years. Yeah, I got to tell you, I it's always been a, you know a, you know a source of <clears throat> uh, mystification for me. I don't I don't know. See, especially when we're doing Tentendera, because we're trying to sell it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to get a lot of, a lot, you know, more people involved or into it or, you know, scale it or whatever. And it's always been very hard. I think a lot of it has to do with psychology. I, I'm not, you know, it, it requires a certain kind of person, you know I mean? I don't know. I For example, I mean, I mean, Whitney can be very dynamic when he talks, if he wants to if he can get him to talk, but... I mean, like, for example, I had dinner with Steve Jobs, right? Jobs. And I don't want to get into all the details how that ended up, but you get this guy is, you know, blessed memory. He, 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 he has a charisma. You understand? He's, he has a charisma, the way he behaves, the way he acts, even the way he dressed. He was so well-dressed. I mean, it was, I mean, you know, with the, the, the turtleneck thing, you know, it, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just luck. I, you know, it, it requires something. For example, that I don't have. You know, um, I don't know. I mean, it's why something works and why something you know why something takes off and why something doesn't. Maybe you know, a hundred years from now, somebody will rediscover you know race you know and uh, and and they think that they invented them, which is fine. And maybe they'll be lucky, happier, you know, luckier, you know, and uh, and we'll be able to. To promulgate it more, I don't know. Yeah, you were talking about the fact that you know open source might have gotten in the way, and I think sometimes it, you could look at it and go, "Yeah, maybe that did hold it back." But I think actually Jay does prove the point that I don't think it's open source that holds it back, because Jay is open source. But and this is the big but when you when you want to use it, you have to get thinking at a different level. You have to dig in deeper. You have to stop and actually. It, it takes effort to program in J. Even even now, when I'm programming in J, it takes effort for me to do it. It's not something that I go and go, oh, I'll just dash this off. I'm not that kind of a programmer. I'm not that smart. But in the process of using the language, it allows me to go through and refine my thoughts to the point that they do become clear. And what I end up with in the end, I'm usually very happy with because it, it does that. But if... If you were to say to somebody, you know what, I can make you, I, I, can, I can extend your life, say, 20 years. You can live 20, 30 years longer. Would you, would you like to do that? Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, so now what you need to do is you need to restrict your diet. You need to exercise every day. You need to do all these things. And if you do that, you've got a very good chance. And if you, if you live a, you know, risk, uh, have good risk assessment, chances are you're going to live 30 years longer. And most people know that because that's common knowledge if you if you are healthy and you exercise you'll live longer most people or many people won't do that because that's a lot of work yeah <laughs> and why would you do it that way and i think that becomes the challenge with some of these languages is it is work to think this way even when you know them you have to do the work you have to be the kind of person that goes you know what I'm going to work at this, and that's okay. It's, it's not easy. That's okay. I'm just going to work at it. And I think that's not a common, as you say, psychological trait 
within people. I think the people who are willing to go, oh, this is really um, intimidating or this is really difficult, but I'm going to stick to it, um, they're not that common. And usually, and quite often, as you say, when you talk about the sales of these languages, people who can do this, they are quite successful. They're also, I think, it requires a certain amount of intelligence, a lot of intelligence. You know, you see, you're, you're, you're not, you don't have that many people. See, us guys, we like languages in general, right? I mean, I was, I, you know, I wanted to get maybe, it's not enough time, but I mean, like, you know, like Jay, I mean, Jay, it reminded me, I mean, I, by the way, I knew Irishman very well. I had a really personal relationship with, with, with Kenneth because I sold a lot of products. One, I was one of the first IBMs, well, I was on the first class of IBM salesmen that sold software only. And what IBM was doing is trying to sell, you know, the APO family because it drags a lot of iron with it. So I, I you know, so I, I interacted with Iverson all the time, you know, so we're good friends. And I also know all his kids and his wife. When he was at IBM, he was a little bit constrained and he couldn't do all the things he wanted to do with the language. And the lang APO was a smaller, simpler language, even though it's pretty big. When he went to Jay, he just went wild, you know? And you see all the things that, that got in, put in there, and it's hard. I mean, for some people, it's, it's difficult. There's a lot to know. And see, Arthur Whitney's attitude, number one, he didn't have that luxury. And the reason why, why they like him in finances and why people are willing to learn that is because the stuff was unbelievably fast and unbelievably good at rendering those kinds of algorithms. So he got, you know, he got a good foot foothold in there. Those people are all very smart. I'm mean, trust me, the guys on Wall Street are not stupid. And he gets that, you know, he gets that. And so he he emphasizes more simplicity and speed. And I don't know. I mean, I really don't know what the benchmarks are. I don't know what the fastest APL today is and how it would compare with K or or Q or the same thing goes for Q. What I'm saying here goes, you know, equally for Q. And I don't know about Jay. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people add things that are interesting from a language point of view, but not necessarily from a performance point of view, you know, and I don't know. I mean, I, I, by the way, I, I, sh I don't want to criticize because I don't know Jay. And, uh, you know, and, and it could very well be it. It's really fast and really great and really scales and everything like that. And you have on the one hand expressiveness and another thing, you know, speed. Yeah, I think that's kind of my, what I think is the golden path for array languages is basically trying to basically follow what what um, Arthur did in that you know the fa the fact that it's a somewhat esoteric language you have to there's a certain amount of a barrier barrier to entry uh, in terms of the way you have to think about it and the way you spell it but if you can come up with a, a blazingly fast array language where potentially it's even limited you take away some of the functionality that exists in APL and J with you know nested nested vectors and stuff because that doesn't won't map as well to accelerated hardware but if you can find some kind of language that is just you know an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude faster than everything out there and it runs on accelerated hardware um, that's going to be something that like people there's a there's going to be a set of people that can't ignore that cuz that's exactly what they need they don't care what it looks like if it's if it's faster they'll want to use it um, which is why, like, I'm convinced there's some secret company out there that we just, like, we'd have to keep interviewing people. And then one day we're going to find out, oh, yeah, I've been, I'm um, sitting, sipping my, whatever, my Thai uh, on Hawaii. I sold the company for however much money and um, just no one's ever heard of it. Because um, it sounds like there, there are more and more of these companies, as, as we just discovered. Um, so this is, a, this is interesting because we're di distinguishing two, two things we like about the languages. 
One is the speed. Uh, as you say, people have paid big money um, to use K um, simply because of the speed. And as you say, Connor, don't care what it looks like. In fact, I remember Jeanette Lustgarten once saying to me, um, all, all our customers, all our KX customers are people for whom everything else has failed. It's like nobody wants this weird maverick technology in their stack. The only reason they've got it is because nothing else will do the job. That's pretty harsh, pretty self-deprecating. And then there's people who actually like it. Uh, so when I sit down to write a piece of Q code, I think the last time, last job I did I was hacking uh, hacking sound file metadata to import a bunch of stuff into Apple Music. I published a, a blog post on that last week. Um, I was thinking about um, what Bob was saying a few minutes ago about you know, this stuff is hard. You've got to work at it. I'm thinking. As I start that, I've got a sense of anticipation. I'm a little excited about what I'm going to do. I don't quite know what the what the end result's going to be. I'm pretty confident I'm going to get this stuff into my Apple Music library. But what's the script going to look like? Well, what I'm hoping is it's going to look kind of cool. By the time I don't know what the codes, you know, I haven't solved the problems. I don't really know what problems. I've got to solve until I've been all the way through the data, but I'm hoping that by the time I finish, I'm going to have something I want to show people. I'm going to say, hey, that's, that's pretty cool. Could you believe I got the job done with just that little code? Can you believe that the code is this readable? It's this clear what's going on, something like that. It's exemplary. You know? So there's an aesthetic thing, and it's completely separate from the speed. I don't I, In that job, I didn't need it to be fast at all. It's pure delight. Well, but you, you know... There's there's two there's two issues here. A, a person might go in for the speed, but there's the speed in two ways. Speed number one is that it, that it executes quickly, right? But speed number two is how quickly can you implement something? And that's where the the language, the power of the language, and it, it, that it should not be underemphasized. That's really really important, right? Because you can do very complicated things and maintain, you know, I'm talking about problem level complexity, you know, it's irreducible, right? You can ride that very well if you have a language that doesn't force you into all this minutia and stuff that you can't, you know, deal with. So there's a speed to development and there's a speed to execute. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I, I just literally got this question in my defense last week because i used the word power in my thesis i don't know how many times referring to these languages and one of the comments i got was like what do you mean by power and when i i, I gave an answer during the defense which was okay but I, I i thought about it afterwards and i realized that like power is an overloaded term and you just described there's there's different types of power and um i think the the word the version i was using was more in the speed uh in which you can write something and also like how much you can say like it's it sort of ties into expressiveness is um, the power of the glyphs is that they're rank polymorphic and that they, you can do so much on, on, on so many different structures with like, with like so few keystrokes. Um, but at the same time, there's also another power in that. Like if you're using a K or, um, you know, an accelerated APL, uh, it's also extremely fast. Um, and there's, I think there's a article online with an interview with Arthur. And, uh, one of the questions is about like, Oh, it's an interpreted language. Isn't that slow? And then it's like, well, no, like that's a, it's a myth that like, just because it's interpreted 
um, it needs to be a slow language. So it's it's interesting that you you're, you commented exactly on something I was thinking about last week. Is like what does what does power mean? And it actually means multiple things, and all of them really apply to array languages. Yep. All right, so we are well past the hour mark, but I feel like uh, I want to keep going. And you said we don't have enough time. I mean, um, I'm not sure. I sort of kind of want to ask. I mean, this is definitely the most famous people have come up in this episode by far. We had D.E. Shaw first, then Jeff Bezos, then Bill Gates, then Steve Jobs. Are there any other, just in case, if you, you've got a Pokemon collection of, uh, of well-known people that we should... Uh... Okay. Oh, here's a good one. Uh, Alan J. Perlis, he's the first Turing Award winner. He used APL to teach computer science at U of Penn, at Yale, excuse me. That guy was a great guy. I mean, he invented, one of the inventors of Algol, and he became a real great APL guy. Did you end up having, like, conversations, or do you just know about this impact? Because I know... No, I, I, I spoke to him, yeah. Wow. What was that like? Oh, he's great. I mean, he, he, you know, you know what he did? He, he, he said, look, it's really cool. I can, I can teach a guy APL in a week. And then, well, instead of just talking about how you would implement a, an assembler language, right? I now have an implementation language. Remember, that's where you get the power to, to implement something quickly, right? And so he used APL. He taught them APL, and then he taught them all the concepts of, com of the different computing, it, and he implemented these things, or what a macro language looks like, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that's what he was talking about. He, used, he thought it was a great educational thing. And while he was there, obviously, APL was a big deal. But, you know, again, I don't know why these things don't sometimes stick. Other people that are interesting, okay, Benoit Mandelbrot, a blessed memory. What's the connection? With Benoit Mandelbrot? Okay, so, so hmm. we had... Um, um, this is in Morgan Stanley, but we're doing trading. And he was our, you know, he consulted with us. We were looking at, um, you know, attractors and things like that, and, you know, and, and, and um, um, fractal things. And, uh, and uh, he, you know, he was, you know, was helping us out. You know, he thought that was a good idea. We had, I mean, he, I, you know, and also he did, I, I made, I, I went out to, to, um, I mean, there's this thing called the uh, Society of Quantitative Analysts, which is an organization of people that are quantitative, very old organization in, in finance. And, you know, I was on the, you know, in, on the board there. And so we used to go and, and set up things. So I, I made, I, I set up a, a, a trip for all the finance people to go and take a look at what was going on in, uh, at IBM. And uh, they might have an impact on this. And, you know, and Mandelbrot, you know, Mandelbrot was there and he gave a talk. There's another guy named Slomo Winograd who invented the FFT, the F Fast Fourier Transformer at Yorktown Heights. There was John Cock, who was the guy who invented the risk architecture, you know, at, at IBM. And, you know, and, he, and uh, he loved APL. I remember him saying how he, you know, he... Uh, he um, It, that's, he thought that's the way the architecture should be utilized. In other words, big arrays and vectors and things like that is the way that you can best, it's a thing that, that would map most nicely into the risk architecture. Then there was Leon Cooper, who was a Nobel laureate, who helped us with uh, some neural net type stuff that we were using in trading. 
at, uh, at, our, at, at our place. What's interesting is not the technique. What, what's interesting is when you get a real smart guy like Leon Cooper, who's a, you know, who's a scientist, right? And when they apply their brain to trying to understand something, you know, he, he was amazing. I mean, we gave him a problem where we gave him some spreads. We didn't tell him what it was because we didn't want to, uh, you know, and we wanted to find out when, when spreads and stocks, you know, diverge because maybe somebody's got in, in, internal information or whatever. <clears throat> and, you know, we get killed on those because we were just betting on the spreads. You know, when they get big, they, they'll shrink. And when they're shrink, you know, when they're small, they get big, you know. So we gave him the data. It's amazing what he was able to figure out because he's a good scientist. Just looking at the data, he figured it out. Uh, you know, oh, another guy, great guy, Philip Wolf. He was uh, the guy who invented um, quadratic programming. And uh, quadratic programming is, you know, this whole idea of, you know, I'm trying to remember the guy's name now. Yeah, he was in Yorktown Heights. Uh, this whole idea of portfolio analysis, you know, risk, uh, risk versus return, risk return. Sharp ratio? Sharp, sharp yeah, but, but I'm trying to remember the guy who brought it. There was a guy, another, name, another guy. God, he's the guy who invented this idea on, on Wall Street. But at any rate, the whole point is that it's all based on being able to do a quadratic program. It's an extension of linear programming, and that was Philip Wolf. And Philip Wolf loved APL too, and he showed us we, we're having trouble. This is an interesting problem. Uh, we, we wrote the algorithm and for you know quadratic programming, and it was unstable. Depending on what numbers you gave it, it would you know just just take for you know it wouldn't converge. And I remember he came by, he looked at our code, and he and he said to them, "What are you using for zero? So we said, "Well, we're using zero." He says. Well, that's naive. He says zero is too small, and and the point is, what what value do you use for it? And actually, this is more like an art. I mean, it's really obviously it has to do with chaos and everything like that. But so he gave us a number. As soon as we plugged in that number, you know, started, started to work. Philip was great. I don't I don't know if these guys are still alive. You know. So anyway, those are other guys. And oh, Irving Lewandowski Berger. This is another, another guy. He was an IBM vice president, corporate vice president. Not a VP. I mean, I'm talking about a real VP, you know. And we were having trouble with APL. It wasn't going fast enough. This is when we're still doing APL on the mainframe. And he actually had something done in the architecture, changed the hardware so that we could get more, more bang for the buck. And the IBM, you know, the thing that came after 370, I don't remember what it was. He's a very interesting guy, too. And of course, Ken Iverson, I mean, we all know Ken, you know, so. It's, it's surprising how many, um, I don't want to say famous people, but just like well-known people in, in computer science secretly, or maybe not even secretly, uh, but just had a fondness for APL. Um, like you just added a bunch of names to my list, but I also know um, like Alan Kay, the small talk. He was a big APL fan. Um, Alexander Stepanov, who is um, very important in the C++ community. He was a big um, APL fan, um, and the, just all these, you know, I think, I can't remember if I just mentioned Bill Gates, but it's, it's odd that all of, uh, there seems to be this like trend of a lot of folks that, uh, had this fondness for APL, but it was just either like a side thing or, or, or um, it, it never became the, the, you know, their main tool that they were working with. Um, and I wonder, yeah, it's just, it's just curious. Like the more and more we do these interviews and the more people we talk to, 
uh, I used to think of APL as this kind of, you know, esoteric, you know, it's, I've read the 10 programming languages that are dead, uh, and you know, it's on that list and that, but then sure enough, there's, um, it's not just like a small collection of people that are interested in like, you know, we just discovered today that Bill Gates not only was an API, I'd heard that he had a little manual in his, in his desk drawer, but I hadn't heard that he implemented like, th that's more than uh Yeah, he did an implementation of API. That's more than just being like, oh, I, I find this interesting, like to take the time and actually, um, and th there's other, there's other folks that have done the same thing. Rob Pike, who worked on um, the Go language and his two other um, co-creators, uh, Rob and Ken Thompson, um, they all did little APL interpreters all at one point. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very curious that uh, this, this seems to be a trend amongst uh, on some level of infamy or, fa or fame. Um, these, you know, these computer scientists, uh, I mean, who hasn't heard of Bill Gates? <laughs> right. Not so much a closed off little niche, more like the way we think these days of a fungal network in the forest. Yeah. Yeah, right, right, exactly. All right, well, um, Bob, Stephen, do you have any final questions? Bob? You've had this wealth of experience. You've met all these people, Joel. If you were to talk to somebody starting out, either just in the working with array languages or just generally if they're programmers or interested in this kind of stuff, would you have any advice to them about what, in your experience, what's the best way to start out with this stuff and and have a fulfilling experience with it? Well, it depends on when you get a person, you know? I mean, unfortunately, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an ocean of chaos, and most of it is nonsense. There's like millions and millions of people that are programming, people that are using their cell phones in some way, they're kind of doing something like programming. And so a lot of them, their minds are already, they're already invested in something else. So it's hard. It's hard to find somebody that, you know, has, you know, beginner's mind. So it's tough. You know, we hired two guys into 1010 Data who came to Array Languages on their own. We put an ad in Reddit. There's a Reddit thing on, you know, on, on Array things or whatever. And these were people that came to it on their own. They said, gee, this is a good idea. This is an interesting thing, you know? So it's hard to, it's hard to say, you know, I, I guess if a person loves languages, right? For example, we didn't talk about Lisp. I think Lisp is pretty orthogonal to all these things. And I have a certain respect for it. And there's certain things that, make, that are easier to do in that, you know? And it's really different. I mean, Fortran and COBOL and Scala and, you know, and, you know, and I don't know, all these languages, they're all more or less the same, you know? But there are some different ideas. And people that like, I, like languages would, would be interested at least in, in looking at it, you know? I mean, now you, you can get stuff. You can get, you can get a version of K, you can get a K, APL, and things like that that are, you know, free, right? So, you know, point them out, point, point it to them. I don't know. I, it's hard that I, I, you know, I wish, you know, you say all this experience that I've had, I, it's, it mystifies me. I still can't figure out what makes a person like something or not like something, you know? Sorry, I, I can't uh, do better. Well, I think what we need to do is we need to get a t-shirt that says, 
uh, one potato, two potato, four loops, and then like not me. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's great. Well, yeah, but that now you're in the area of marketing, you know, and uh, you know, it, sure. Hey, look, I mean, if you get a clever enough person that gets in something going, people will go, you know, they go nuts, you know. It's just that when you go nuts and you hit, you know, you hit a language, it's hard. As you said, it takes effort, right? And, uh, you know, it's a slow thinking, fast thinking kind of thing. Most people just want kind of stuff to happen easily. We, I mean, the idea of putting some effort is like a lost art. Yeah. I think, I think potentially part of the, part of the marketing issue too, is that for, for the folks that are in the category of, you know, they fall in love with this paradigm of which I consider myself a member um, that rabbit hole, hole that you fall into is very, very, you know, it's a deep and like, it, it's not a gradual thing. It happens so quickly that there was a couple months where like, I didn't understand trains and point free. Uh, but then like you, once you get like the snowball rolling, it starts to roll so quickly. And the hole is so deep that very quickly, the videos that probably I was posting on YouTube before that were approachable, you know, there was like two or three of those videos. And now I'm just like, well, Check out this like combinator point free blah 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 stuff. It's awesome. I'm not really gonna get into explaining it because I'm just having so much fun with this. Like, we're, we're we went from one order of magnitude, you know, ability to think in my head to two orders of magnitude, and you've now become that professor that uh, isn't really that great at teaching the material because they're they're too far removed from what was it like to be confused. Uh, which is why I think there's some videos that um, Rodrigo, who's a, a employee at Dialogue Limited. Um, and he's really focusing on sort of in, introductory and, you know, why you might, I think even Richard Park, he had a, a recent video at Apple Seeds about like uh, worth learning or sorry, I can't remember the title, something about worth learning and, and even better to like master it. And he showed just some simple things of like outer products. Like I remember the first time seeing an outer product, like I had never seen that in another programming language. And I, I, I knew a bunch of programming languages. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that, I think, yeah. I am also mystified, but like, there's, there's gotta be a reason and, uh, we'll, 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 as a group, we'll figure it out And t-shirts, I think are the starting point. We need some, we need some potato gifts and, um, yeah, <laughs> some, some, there's, there's something there. See, one of the things about APL, because it's, it's a mathematical thing and it, all these things generalize is what you don't know doesn't hurt you. If you didn't know that there were vectors and you said one plus one or a gets one, or in, you know, in K you have do and you know while and all that kind of stuff. You could be programming and never know that, there were, that you were doing an array language. And then later on, when you want, when you learn an idea, you, you don't have to know everything in order to do something. Right. That's one of the advantages of a clean, well thought out something that is exploiting this whole tradition of mathematics. That's an advantage. Yeah. Even even to this day, yeah. There's yes a, a, a percentage of each of K J. Uh, BQN and APL that I don't know. There are operators that I've never touched, and in BQN especially because it's the newest, there is I think a whole four or five operators that have been introduced in that language that I have not. I don't. I have no idea what they do, but like you, that doesn't affect your ability. It probably means that you're spelling three or four more characters in some cases to solve some problem. Um, but like that just means that down the road I'm going to stumble on this thing and be like, oh my goodness, I've been I've been doing this with three or four characters, and I th that exact thing that I needed existed there, and it's. Yeah, it's it's that's what I was talking about with the, the deep rabbit hole is you get started and uh, as you go deeper and deeper, you just realize, wow, this is even even more and more powerful. For example, inner product, right? You can just ask just the plus dot times. Well, just take plus dot times. Think of all the things 
that you can do with plus dot times for which you have operators. For example, you want to sort something. If you have a permutation, right? You can do it with an inner product. Because you know, by putting zeros and ones in a matrix, you can make that matrix do a sort. You can make that matrix give you any permutation you want, right? By putting ones and zeros. So it's interesting how all these ideas, you know, connect to each other. I mean, I think Aptor was talking about that. How many things, how many things make sense, you know, in the language? I mean, you know, it's 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 just fascinating. Yeah, I think it was Adam as well. Was when when Stephen was talking about that, or Stephen Aptor was talking about that was saying that at some conferences his dad was at, people would be walking around trying to figure out ways to use inner product with different uh, primitives and, and come up with what they could do, yeah. Exactly. When he said that, I said to myself, yeah, but I'm saying, just think about it. In, it. You can do indexing. Effectively, indexing is an inner product. I don't know. There may be some deep thing in there. I don't know. Also, the way that the, a lot of proofs are done in, a, in, in APL, uh, you start with nothing. You know, the concept of an empty something is a fundamental idea. So you can derive, you know, the plus reduce of iota zero, right? You can do that by some proof that involves starting with, you know, I don't want to get into it. It's too late. Anyways, but look, if we want to talk and talk again. By the way, people that you should talk to is Adam Jacobs. Seriously, you should talk to Adam Jacobs. And you should talk to maybe uh, John Ernest. Okay. Yeah, he's chicken farming out in I don't know Washington State, but he is a young, and he's a young man. He's somebody who came to this on his own. Interesting, Stephen. You have a last comment or a question? T-shirt story. Okay. This is 1976. I was on the top deck of a number 13 bus in London. And I was wearing an IP Sharp Associates T-shirt. As I stood up to go down, the back of my T-shirt becomes visible. No one can see it, but I sit down. On the back of the T-shirt is the ripple shuffle expression. It exactly describes how you take a deck of cards, cut it into, and so they all interleave. And as I descended the stairs of the bus, this voice behind me in an American accent says, "Look, Martha, an APL expert." <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. I think that's there's no better way to uh, to end it than that. Um, so yeah, Joel, thank you so much for for coming on. I've been looking forward to this conversation for you know two weeks basically since uh, since Stephen uh, recommended you, and um, I know our listeners are gonna absolutely love this conversation. So hopefully at some point we'll be able to have you back and tell any of the stories that uh, we weren't able to get to today. But um, yeah, thank you so much for taking your time to come on and chat with us. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. And with that, we'll say happy array programming. Happy array programming. programming.